Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This episode is part of our Minute CME curriculum and is titled, Technology in the Monitoring of the PAH Patient. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello, welcome to this roundtable discussion. Today we're going to be talking about use of technology in managing our patients with pulmonary hypertension. I guess the good, bad, and the ugly of technology. My name is Rich Chanick. I'm professor of medicine at UCLA Medical Center, co-director of the Pulmonary Vascular Disease Program, and delighted to be joined by a few colleagues, Dr. Gene Elwing, who's professor of medicine at the University of Cincinnati and director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program there, Dr. Oksana Schloben, who's associate professor of medicine at University of Virginia and medical director of the Pulmonary Hypertension Program at Inova Fairfax Medical Center, and my partner, Dr. Rajan Sagar at UCLA, um, who also co-directs the Pulmonary Vascular Disease Program and is professor of medicine at UCLA. Welcome, everybody. So I think this is a very timely topic, technology, and I think we've all, for better or worse, been um, thrown into modern technology given the COVID pandemic, um, you know, with telemedicine, and we'll talk a little bit about our use of technology for monitoring our patients. So, you know, maybe we'll start with Eugene and give us your your sense of of how you're using telemedicine and technology now. So, telemedicine is something we've all had to learn very quickly, and I think we're getting better at it. But I think we all have a love hate relationship with it. Mm. I think it's offered a lot of very great things for our patients who are hard to reach. Mm-hmm. Right, We can reach them at odd times. We can do early morning visits before work. We can reach them when they don't have transportation or they're too sick to come in. But we have the challenges of reliability, connections, mm-hmm. um, good visuals. And so I think that we have had to evolve with it. As I said, we're getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I feel like it's something we need to even improve on further and get more people access reliably. Yeah, no, I think we'll agree with that. I mean, I'd ask you just from a personal experience as we started doing these telemedicine or virtual visits, you know, what percent of the time would you say you have a, able to get a smooth connection, patient has good broadband, they can appropriately log on, you can hear them, they can hear you? Yes. <laughs> what do you say? It's so 50% in, or? Initially, I think it was literally about 10 to 15%. That was early in the pandemic. Uh-huh. It was very frustrating for everyone. And patients would get very stressed by it. Like they would be trying to log on an hour before the visit. Um, at mid-pandemic, about 50%. Now I'm about 70%. And so about one or two patients um, I will have to call and, and talk to on the phone, or I'll have to do a phone and then their video, which will be choppy. So it's getting better, it's but getting better. definitely not 100%. Not, not the same, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, obviously we lose something in this, in this setting. And Oksana, maybe, you know, you can give us, you know, maybe the less rosy view of telemedicine. The bad and the ugly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, I I would say I have more of the hate than love relationship with with, with telemedicine. Um, I I agree a hundred percent with everything that uh, Jean says, uh, that has already mentioned uh, all of the, all of the pros. Unfortunately, there are things you just lose with telemedicine assessments. Um, uh, well, first of all, 
let's assume that you have a great connection and um, you can hear them and you can see them. Um, your physical exam is extremely limited. Uh, I guess you can say that someone is not short of breath while talking to you, but you really can't do much much else. Even if uh, you know we tell the patients beforehand, please tell, take your vital signs. Many people don't have a blood pressure cuff. Um, they don't have an oxygen monitor. Um, they have forgot to, you know, they don't have a scale or they haven't just taken their vital signs when, when you need them to do. So here goes, you know, part of your your risk assessment. Um, and then, you know, a lot of people are really just not good at assessing their volume status. Mm-hmm. Um, you ask them to look at their legs. I mean, how many times in clinic they say, I have no swelling, and then you press and there is that pitting edema right there. So imagine them sitting far away from you um, and uh, you asking them, well, do you have any swelling? Um, no, I don't. And, uh, you know, and then you get their blood work if they go to get their blood work and their BNP has doubled. And you're like, I bet you did have some swelling. Mm-hmm. So, you know, so you have to uh, um, uh, uh, really rely on um, what they tell you as far as this uh, science of right heart failure that you would be able to ascertain yourself if you saw them. And and then you also lose some other things. So six-minute walk test. Yes, there are some um, uh, some maybe ways to do home six-minute walk test, but not really anything standardized or um, um, really reliable. So you're going to lose the fact that, you know, they drop their distance, that they're desaturating, that their heart rate doesn't come down at the end of their walk test. So here goes that part of the assessment. Yeah. So I think um, it is good when you cannot get what you really should be getting, mm-hmm. which is in-person, in-person visit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, and I think there are a lot of times when you see someone in person, um, you sort of, you talk to the patient and you often find out things that they were not planning to talk to you about. And I think some of that mm-hmm. really kind of gets missed um, in, in when you're trying to telemedicine. Yeah. Initially, we had no option. Obviously, this is from the pandemic and, you know, everything was shut down. It was mandatory. Now it's most places not anymore mandatory to do televisits. But I know, like Raj, I mean, we work in the same clinic. I mean, a fair number of your visits are still virtual, even though they maybe don't have to be. What's Why is that? Is it the patient or yourself prefers it or you find for some patients it's perfectly appropriate and avoids the horrendous LA traffic for them or what? Yeah, I would say two things. I think one is that they, they also get used to, they like the idea of a, of a, of a, of a video visit or a televisit um, because it does save them a lot of time and it's just so much easier for them. And I, I don't blame them for wanting to do televisits only, but I think a better way perhaps is maybe a, maybe a hybrid approach in some of these cases. So as you know, we sort of maybe ask them to come, you know, every other visit, you know, and make a personal appearance or particularly if they need testing to try to bring them in if they're, you know, sort of uh, not just for the visit, but to say, listen, we also need to get this testing done. So it kind of makes it more worth their while, so to say. Um, Again, trying to convince someone who's had four televisits in a row, hey, that now you need to come in, you know, there's, it's sometimes can get a little, a little bit difficult. No, we do that all the time. I mean, it's a limit to what 
I, I think that telemedicine, you know, there is a role for it, but uh, I mean, I would envision, let's say you start someone on therapy and they live four hours away. So you do a telemedicine visit in two weeks or four weeks. So they don't need to drive all this time for you to sort of check in. And, and really that visit is more to address side effects. It's not necessarily to assess uh, whether they're responding to therapy. So if you use it really in a targeted manner, I think it can really add a lot, uh, but really not as a substitution for um, in-person visits. And I'm using it for results. So you have yeah. a light heart cat yes. and yeah. I want to talk yeah. to you, yeah. but I've already prepped you because I know you're probably going to need a prostacyclin. Right. So I've done all the background work and I get the cat and then I talk and then we get the medication yeah. going. So that's how I've been using it. And I think there's something that we assume that, you know, they're getting the whole visit when they do a telemedicine visit, but we're forgetting all our support staff that they really need to interact with. And they don't get that when they do telemedicine. They don't get our nurse, our pharmacist and our, our respiratory therapist part of it. Yeah, I mean, I think there's creative ways to maybe bring those people into the discussion, but but that's a fair point. We're talking sort of in these other segments about difficult to reach patients. And, you know, I mean, do you have examples where just such a patient just would not have been able to come to your clinic except virtually or at, or as often, where it's really been critical as a positive Oh, yes, definitely. Uh, We have patients that really are living in rural areas with limited resources. And some of the states, their their, um, state insurance does not provide any transportation. So there is literally no way they can come other than a virtual visit. And, you know, they can say, I can commit to once a year. But that's what they can do. And in a very stable patient, that might be appropriate. Mm -hmm. But, yes, I think it has allowed us to reach people that otherwise would have missed the opportunity to feel better yeah, and do better. Yeah, we have to keep that in mind as well to balance this all out. Um, I want to change gears a little bit. Um, we're talking about technology in this segment. And beyond telemedicine, obviously technology is quite advanced, and, and in medicine especially, and there's the opportunity to monitor patients at home and do some of the assessments that maybe, you know, we haven't, you know, we haven't been able to do virtually or remotely. Um, and what is your feeling about that, Roger, innovative guy by nature? You know, I mean, you know, where's that going there? What's, what's out there? Um, I think there's a lot of stuff out there. I, I, I don't know. I think we're sort of still in this phase where we're trying to understand how to best incorporate this stuff into like real life practice. But, um, to Gene's point earlier, I think we're even just getting basic vital signs. I think we, this was mentioned by all of you guys in terms of, you know, sometimes you do these visits and you don't even get the basic vitals. Uh, but as you know, there's been a big push to get home pulse oximetry, for instance. Um, and so, you know, with, with the, uh, with the COVID pandemic, that's, that's been, um, easy. I think people are more apt to have a home oximetry. Um, and then, you know, one of the things we may have them do short of a actual six minute walk at home is to just sort of walk around and, and get, get a little winded and let's see if you desaturate, you know, if you actually drop your oximetry, which to me, I mean, is a, is a, you know, is really helpful in terms of how sick they may be or, or, or exactly, you know, how bad things can be. If we're looking at a patient, for instance, with a little bit of concurrent lung disease or, or if they uh, happen to be a little bit more hypoxic than others for various reasons. So that's, that's been helpful. Um, how about the so-called activity monitoring? So the, yeah, there is one with the uh, actigraphy. I think that's uh-huh. what you are referring to. And I think that that's uh, something that right now uh, is being used in some of the clinical trials. To, to measure the uh, um, sort of 
average daily activity um, and, and is, is maybe incorporated in, uh, in um, uh, uh, also in this push by FDA to really um, prove that medications affect how people feel. Um, so this patient's reported outcomes. So actigraphy is one of them. Um, that we, we've used in, in one of the clinical trials that we participate in. So I, I, I think it's a, it's a, um, they potentially can be good additional tools. Because I think, uh, you know, one thing that we do get um, when patients come in, it's more of a snippet in time assessment versus um, what happens uh, the rest of the time. So... I think so for the a, folks with the Apple Watches, I think right. we've, yeah. you know, people love to track their, you know, number of steps mm-hmm. per day. So I've kind of I kind of use that as a rough guideline and ask them to try to increase that by some amount and just sort of use that as a you know we're always trying to recondition and rehab these patients so we sort of say hey you know let's if you're not going to use the treadmill or or actually go for a jog just because of all the restrictions and stuff maybe maybe you can just sort of try to increase the number of steps you do per day yeah and I think that's great and people even just using their smartphone because they were very very hesitant to go to rehab. Um, or rehabs are closed. Right. Mm-hmm. We have been able to use technology to do virtual rehab uh, for some of our patients. How which do you is, do that? So we offer virtual cardiopulmonary well. rehab. Yeah, it's amazing. Well. Yeah. So they're so they're getting the same class, but mm-hmm. right. But they're doing it at home. But the, yeah. So I mean, obviously, you have to have equipment at home. So there is a prerequisite that you have a treadmill um, or a new step, or and then you know, whatever else that they, they use, weights, bands. But yes, uh, our program started you offering it as well. So it's obviously not the, uh, the uh, um, uh, uh, monitoring, mm-hmm. uh, but it's more of a pulmonary rehab that really is recommended for all of the patients with pulmonary hypertension. So, yeah. So at least it's something where they feel there's some somebody helping them and somebody that they can talk with and report back to us if they're having problems. So they've enjoyed it. Yeah, and you have to believe that some of these patients wouldn't have done rehab mm-hmm. by going to a class, even b- before the pandemic. I mean, we've all had patients like that. And so I think I think it has to be a good thing. And I really like the activity monitoring concept. I think, you know, we have to acknowledge it's not validated and there are different devices and they're used in different ways and it hasn't been accepted as a primary endpoint in terms of like there's no pH drug that's been approved based on that, but the concept makes so much sense, right? I mean, like you said, you know, you see the patient in clinic, it's a snapshot, how they're doing that day, you know, and it just makes more sense to follow them in real time to really see things like activity and, like you said, patient reported outcomes. So, you know, obviously it's going to continue to advance. I think the message here, you know, the horse is out of the barn. I mean, technology is not going backwards. So, we're doing telemedicine. I'm sure we'll continue to do it in some form or another. We're going to continue to do technology. And, you know, I think it's going to change the practice of medicine in some ways. There's obviously going to be hiccups and some negative things about it along the way. But I think ultimately, you know, hopefully it'll be to the benefit of patients and, and improve that access to care, you know, that we've been talking about. So thank you very much for this great discussion. And thank you for your attention. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Global Learning Collaborative, GLC, and Total CME Incorporated, and 
is part of our Minute CME curriculum. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.